Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining us once again. Today, we look into the thorny and very topical issue of cybersecurity, and particularly cybersecurity in government, given that most of our audience is working in government and thinking about the content that they're creating, and also the, the interactions and the technology and the information technology that's now being used, and indeed how they can think about this issue of cybersecurity. Because today we speak to one of the world's leading authorities in the cybersecurity space. Her name is Laura Bell, and she is the CEO of SafeStack, which is a New Zealand-based information security agency that focuses on protecting citizens and businesses online. It's a it's a boutique security company, but it's really about planning and implementing those measurable security programs into um, your your business or your government agency, so as you can you know, keep yourself safe. And she also looks at this uh, challenge of training people in. Uh, security and cybersecurity so that people can know just exactly how it is that they can keep their organisations and their information and their content safe. Laura is also a board member for Hackers Helping Hackers, which is an Australian organisation based in Melbourne, which is promoting ethical hacking. She, before founding SafeStack in 2014, Laura worked with a number of security firms looking at things such as security assessments and the development of training and also that critical role of information protection. And she joins me now from Auckland, New Zealand. Laura, thanks very much for joining us in transition. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. It's it's a big issue, isn't it? Cyber, that it's this notion of cyber security. And again, for a lot of people working in government, it's a it's a huge challenge. You know, obviously there is at one end of the scale where you have um, organisations, particularly in a place like Australia, like the Australian Signals Directorate that are really, you know, fighting the battle on the front line uh, on a daily basis, all the way through to people learning about their information management, learning about their processes so that they're not leaving any, you know, any weaknesses in their system such that they can be penetrated by people who might be looking for information that they're not entitled to. Mm, it, it's a huge area and it's an area that we don't really understand as humans very well. Um, when you've got, you know, say a giant eight foot bear walks in your door and looks at you with a kind of hungry look on their face and just walks forward, you know exactly what you're dealing with. Um, and you've got an instinct built into you to protect yourself. When we talk about cyber risk or cyber threat, we're talking about an ephemeral enemy, if you will, if you want to carry on with the military-style acronyms and, and analogies we tend to use, uh, that we can't taste or see or feel. We have no idea how big or small it is, where it's coming from. And so it's a very abstract concept when we try and figure out how to protect ourselves. And that's led to some real challenges in knowing where to spend our time and money because, you know, how do you do it when you don't have this, this kind of measurable feeling for what is out there and why you need to care? So how do you then turn it into something that's real? 
How do you take that ephemeral concept of, I'm not quite sure what it is, but I have to think about it, to something, well, here are some concrete steps that I can actually take uh, in order to deal with this threat? Well, for us, we consider language to be really, really important in the space. Now, we all talk about cyber in this kind of uh, in this kind of way at the moment that it's quite big and it's quite generic, really, in terms of what we're talking about. It could mean everything from um, a bored teenager who just doesn't have a lot to do on a Saturday night through to a giant government agency who's decided they're going to pick a fight. So at SafeStack, we focus on bringing this much more closer to home and re- removing the big fluffy language where we can. So, for example, if you talk about yourself as a human rather than just at your work at the moment, you went into your living room. We like to work through exercises with organizations, with individuals where we plan the robbery of their place. So, you know, it's a very dark subject, I'll admit. We're not the most fun at parties. But we will talk to them and go, okay, so what's the most valuable thing in your world right now? Well, that could be data, it could be a person, it could be a place. Um, How would you steal it? Um, And we don't mean the tech. I don't want to hear words about port scanners and crazy hacking tools. It's it's irrelevant. It's how would you do this? Because the real thing about understanding and surviving security is demystifying it and realizing that crime and, and, and theft is the same as it's always been with humans. It's the path of least resistance, the easiest way we can do it. And so by looking at how we would attack, we can learn how we would defend. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's really the, the basis of it is really the, is the strategy about understanding um, weaknesses and, and how you can exploit those weaknesses. Absolutely. I've had CEOs of banks and bank robberies. I've had worked with people who, you know, we, we talk about some of the bits we're not allowed to talk about. You know, why would you, you know, do extortion? Why, why are key people risk a, a real problem? And not to scare people, a fear for us is actually a, a, a pretty perverse motivator. You only get a, a result for a very short period of time. But it's once you start talking about that and normalizing, it's okay to talk about that we're vulnerable and that that's scary then we can then move on from fear into actually doing stuff. And it's the doing stuff part that we really need to get on with. Okay. So in that doing stuff, because I think that's a great way to, to frame the challenge. So is it, I now know, say I'm working in government, I'm a government information worker. I understand that, you know, there are vun- vulnerabilities, but what are then the steps that we've got to take, those concrete steps in order to ensure that we're not contributing to a, a pre-existing problem or that we are perhaps even establishing best practice in the teams that we work with? Yeah. So there's a couple of things in this space that we all need to take a breath and kind of acknowledge. Firstly, that that's best practice is fiction. Um, best practice is, is a very fluffy term that consultants like me have banded around for years, and it's normally disguised the fact that we weren't quite sure. And that's okay. Admitting we don't know is actually part of our security problem right now, is we're very scared of saying we don't know. Um, in terms of tangible steps and things we should do, it's very challenging for us to admit as a community, but it's the basics that are getting us every time. The ASD, um, the equivalents in the UK and New Zealand have all put out lists of the types of vulnerabilities that are most likely to get you compromised. And I think the top four controls for the Australian system were, were basic things. They were updating and patching, uh, managing accounts, that kind of thing. And it's those basics 
those simple things that we aren't spending the time on. We are spending the time buying devices and very sophisticated technological solutions. But actually, if you can give $10 to somebody to give to um, trade for a password, or if you know, you've know you got staff members who don't know how to handle information just in a basic manual way, then we're wasting our time because we'll always be compromised by the simplest weakness, not the most complicated. Do you, do you see that, well, in your experience, do you think that people see cybersecurity as their responsibility or is it something that the ICT department is responsible for, therefore it's not my issue and it won't be my fault if something goes wrong? It's funny you should say that. Um, I I think there's a bit of both. Um, For example, if you take phishing, so sending emails to try and elicit materials such as usernames, passwords, documentation, um, there's been, you know, a rhetoric, a conversation in the industry for a long time that this was because we weren't training our people. We, you know, they didn't know what they should be doing. And some people, that's true. But we've actually encountered that 15% of the people that we've surveyed, and we surveyed a number of organizations now in seven countries, we found that some of them were clicking on links in phishing emails, not because they didn't know any better, but because they were curious to see what would happen, (laughs) because it wasn't their problem to clean it up. They weren't incentivized or they didn't have any ownership to say that this was a problem that they needed to care about, that they wanted to protect their organization. And I think that's quite a challenging message for us to get across now as to why we all need to care. And in terms of that, though, and at what point where should should you be designing those sorts of in, interventions around awareness and understanding? Is it the, at the point of orientation where someone joins your team and then sustain that over time, not just sort of the one, you know, once at the beginning and there it is and we won't talk about it again? Uh, what is the best way to be able to, you know, inform people, uh, educate people and then keep them uh, engaged because – you know, as the you know digital transformation continues to change, we have you know further improvements in technology driven by you know the various components of artificial intelligence. Obviously, it's going to become you know the threat will evolve and 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 emerge. So, how do we make sure that people are aware and able in, in this uh, sort of fast moving environment? That's a great question. Um, I know I don't think there's one best way. So, you know, the cop-out answer is there is no one good way, but there are some themes to what we should be seeing. Um, Security, like any other defense, is a collaborative sport. It's a team effort. And so we need to plan our approaches to be collaborative instead of the isolating ways we do it now, such as e-learning on its own. Just making somebody click left 27 times until they complete a test isn't teaching that, you know, the entire education community kind of rolls their eyes at us when they see how we teach our people. Um, We need to find ways to engage people that suits their role. If you're talking with people who are in call centers and they are incentivized in their, their role to keep people happy, that's their measurement of success for their day is customer satisfaction, then we need to plan our training and advisory for those groups so that they can still do their their metrics, so they can still meet their targets, so that their customers are still happy. Uh, at the moment, we give very generic training to all our staff, regardless of the role. We don't really measure whether it's changed any behaviors other than the odd phishing campaign. And we certainly don't do any kind of action mapping where we look at the person's world and go, all right, what do they care about and how do we fit in with that? We kind of dictate rather than collaborate. And I think that's the key. It's ongoing engagement by collaboration that suits the roles. 
But how then do you move it from that sort of, you know, uh, in, inappropriate teaching model perhaps to be able to say, as you say, a, an e-learning module, you know, ticket, okay, you've now passed the test to actually understanding that it is this ongoing iterative um, process that needs to be embedded in the day-to-day activity of an organisation over a, a longer period of time. How how do you achieve that change if we've got a current state that we know is inadequate and a future state that we know what is is perhaps the best way to go about it? How, how do we encourage organisations to go from one to the other? Mm. I think for me, there's a couple of things we're missing at the moment that will help get us towards that point. I'm not sure we know what we need because we don't know what we're doing particularly right now. We don't have a lot of visibility. And that's the first thing. In your organization, we have uh, on average uh, security incidents or security things we do are largely siloed into the teams who deal with them. Or you know, if we have a penetration test or we have an event, it's kind of need to know basis. So on the whole, the organization tends to be very unaware that anything's going on around them most of the time. Um, and we never celebrate success either. The security industry never celebrates. It's, we're kind of the anti-Christmas. Um, <laughs> and it's because, you know, we're always failing in some way. There's always somebody breaching someone somewhere. But by never celebrating, by never calling out behaviors that are actually good, we only ever have a voice when we're negative, And that's not an engaging message. So having visibility and not just in the negative sense, but also celebrating some of the positive, which is out there. And then we also want to have some measurability. So if your department or if your organization is seeing a drop in the number of phishing attacks that worked or the number of ransomware cases, or if you're seeing an increase in the number of people raising tickets or questions about security things, that's interesting. If you're seeing more engagement in your documentation, are more people viewing your policies or engaging with your security processes? Then let's see it. Let's measure that. Um, Because if we're Seeing and measuring, just like any other innovative business right now, the the key to their success is measuring what they're doing and iterating if it's not working. And I think that will take us from what we're doing now, which is kind of we deliver our training and hope, to something we can go, is this working? Are we getting the return on it? And what can we do differently to engage these groups that we can see measurably are not engaged right now? Hmm. Okay, that's that's fantastic advice. Um, Tell me then, really, at a sort of broader contextual, if, if we sort of go up, you know, from the 50,000-foot view and looking down on this particular challenge, um, how, how big a challenge is it now and how bad is it going to get in terms of, secu- you know, security around our information? I think we – I don't know how bad it's going to get, but it's going to get a lot worse before it gets a lot better. Um, for me, I'm very, my personal research and the areas that really fascinate me are the new emerging technologies coming through, the you know, machine learning back systems, um, the artificial intelligence based things, not because of the hype and the buzzwords, but because at the moment we struggle to perceive all of the risks in the environment. And these environments are largely fixed systems. If you put input in, you've got a system that does X, Y, and Z, you know what's going to come out the other end. We're literally building technologies now where we put input in, we have no idea what happens somewhere in the middle, and somewhere something comes out the other end and we hope it's good. Um, So when you're trying to look at risk in that system, because you've got no clear idea or consistency of what pathway that data is going to take through your organization or what's going to come out, then we've got unknowns. 
I think in terms of information, we are gathering more than we ever have, and it has more value, which is not news. But what's new is the fact that we are anonymizing and aggregating so much of it. We've never done that before. And like any other risk behaviors, the more you bring things together, the more chances are that risks will cluster together in it. So we will start to see increased risk from de-identification of data, so crossing over from security into privacy. We'll see increased uh, repercussions if there is a breach because suddenly the data sets are not affecting you know, 3,000 people but millions of people. Um, and I think the first people to really automate and use this data um, for their own benefit will not be the well-intentioned. It will be the people who can exploit it for their own personal gain, whatever that is. Mm. And are there, you know, this sort of almost caricature of these, you know, um, evil actors who are sort of, you know, on a daily basis seeking to, you know, to to create problems, you know, whether it's in a, um, you know, attacking a an energy system or a, a major bank or a telecommunications or a you know defence network, is is that real or is that or is that just cartoonish really in the way that we're, it's characterised? I think so there's an element of truth in it. There are definitely organized nation state and organized crime gangs who are interested and very motivated to be in and around these systems in the government space more on the nation state than the organized crime, but still. Um, so there's definitely truth there. However, not all organizations face the same kind of risks. So, you know, a hydroelectric dam is not going to have the same people interested in it as, say, a retail uh, chain. A retail chain, for example, if you attack it, you don't want to break it. A retail type chain is very profitable to a criminal if you keep it alive and healthy. In fact, it's symbiotic. So organized crime definitely wants a piece of that, but they want to sit there quietly in the background doing their thing and making their money. Um, nation state actors, not really interested in retail chains. It's just not their thing. So it's about finding out why you're valuable and to who. And it's not the same people for each of us. Um, and that's actually kind of fun if you can sit around and start thinking about who are those groups and what do they look like. You can come up with your own little personal most wanted list, if you will. <laughs> In terms of so – just explain to me, say, you know, this notion of a retail chain um, – and, and organised crime and, and cyber security and how might an organised crime gang um, penetrate a, you know, a retail chain system and how might they be able to, to do that in such a way that they are undetected and, and they are but, – but at the same time they're accomplishing what they are, which is to obviously remove, you know, resources out of the retail chain in, into their own um, pockets, so to speak. Okay, so now for full disclosures, not talking about any particular retail chain, just in <laughs> okay. case somebody sat there going, oh my goodness. Um, if it does sound like your word, world, I'm very, very sorry. Um, um, have some hugs for Christmas or something. Um, so how would it work? Well, retail chains have things of value. So you've got different ways you can get value out of it as organized crime. So you could get value out by stealing goods. So, you know, fake orders, get the goods, sell them, make profit. Yep. You've got money laundering, so buy goods legitimately, but using perhaps stolen cards or some other form of currency, and then either return them or on-sell them to get the money back, which is a really great way of keeping money squeaky clean. Um, and you've also got theft of credit card details to begin with. And with us entering a more aggressive online economy now, credit card details are a very uh, lucrative target. 
In terms of how and when they compromise, it depends on the business. All of our organizations now, retail and others, are built of hundreds of different technical components, each of which need to be updated and patched and managed. Um, so finding something that has a vulnerability in it, such as outdated software or a poor password, is just a matter of time. And what we've actually seen in the past um, is that they will use either a legitimate account or some out-of-date software. They will gain a foothold in the, inside the systems. And sometimes they'll even make a little cozy nest. They'll you know, clear out other people who got there first, if there's other malicious people in there, patch up the things that could make them more vulnerable, and set themselves up and, and listen. Essentially, they're there to listen, see data, and then take it out to their own ends. Um, for retail, the, the aim is to stay in the system as long as humanly possible so that you can get the most benefit. Now, if the statistics are to be believed from Gartner and the like, um, they estimate it's currently over 200 days between initial compromise and an organization realizing they've been compromised. And that's quite a long time to get data out of a system. Oh, God, that's frightening, isn't it? Mm, that's, absolutely. That's uh... That's terrifying. 200 days before you actually know that someone's been in your house, so to speak, gathering information. It's phenomenal. Um, for most people, they don't know how to come back from it. Most people don't even have logs that go back that far. <laughs> it's, it's sort of demoralizing a little bit, isn't it? That you, know, that you think that people who have the, uh, you know, the sophistication, the skills, the time, the motivation uh, have, you know, can apply that in obviously – you know, ways that are not um, uh, positive, but then you as someone who's trying to resist that sort of um, um, threat and attack, you don't, may, maybe don't have quite the, you know, the scale or the skill or the ability to, to repel. Uh, absolutely. We have nowhere near the number of defenders we need compared to the aggressive landscape we're in. Yeah. Um, I can only speak for New Zealand. I'm sure you can get the Australian figures. Uh, we have around 430 security professionals nationally. We have around 40 penetration testers nationally. That's a tiny number. Um, we're a small country, admittedly, but that's nowhere near what we need. Um, so it, it can be a very demoralizing state. I, maybe I'm naive or a bit broken or something, but I actually also think it's kind of exciting Okay. because while we do have those challenges, we're never going to have enough people to defend. It's a really amazing time to throw out the rule books and the old governance systems we're used to and go, all right, oh, if we haven't got much money and we don't have many people, then we can do other things. We can innovate, we can automate. And so there's some beautiful opportunities here to embrace the new technologies that are coming through and apply them to security and make up for our lack of people. But that also goes to that original point, isn't it, around um, that cultural change and that, you know, the key risks really are the simple things. But if, And if you could just make a, a small impact in the behaviour of people around the basics, you're going to go a long way to towards keeping yourself safe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what about this notion of skills? You know, if it's not just if, around changing people's behaviour and those cultural elements, which are obviously important, those numbers that you outlined, even just for New Zealand, that sounds woefully nowhere near it. But how then um, do you see the uh, 
industry developing in terms of getting people engaged in the learning, the training, the understanding, so as that you may, you know, double or even triple the number of, of defenders, just not only in New Zealand, but globally, because I know exactly in Australia, same sort of problem that there just are not enough cyber um, security professionals to deal with the challenge and the scale of the challenge that everyone's facing at the moment. Um, well, what we're doing ourselves and, and what we're seeing echoed across the US and other places at this point is um, broadening who we consider is okay to be a security person. Um, I love our community, so please, friends who listen, don't be offended. I still love you. Um, but we're very good at hiring people who look and sound exactly like us, who have the same backgrounds, who have the same qualifications, who went to the same schools, who work for the same employers. Um, at SafeStack, we have a team of roughly 14 at the moment. Um, now, we have on team a games developer, a reformed librarian. We have an illustrator and graphic designer. Not because, you know, oh my goodness, you know, we were desperate in desperate times, but these were amazing people. In our interview process, we get people talking about how they would do harm. We get them thinking through scenarios. And these people, regardless of their background, were amazing. They were able to tell us how they would exploit systems. And more importantly, they were able to communicate how they would fix it. Um, communicators like graphic designers and illustrators have a gift that most of us security people don't have in terms of getting messages across in easy to digest formats. Um, so looking outside of our usual silos of just, you know, developers who went to security or auditors who went to risk, we need to start going, well, how do we take the skills that are in all sorts of groups of our population and just add a little security on top? And that gives us a much more broad and diverse set of opinions and experiences and viewpoints, which is then fed into and shows in our approaches to security. So you're really reframing the challenge, aren't you? You're reframing the challenges away, Go, going back to that point you raised earlier around technology, that it's really not so much about the technology, it's about probably everything else. Yeah, we think as a company, um, um, you know, that's just our opinion, that security companies are primarily communications companies. Our job is to translate very complex, different operating worlds, whether that's business or whether it's technology and whether it's out in somewhere that's picking apples and, you know, that's their business model or if it's a giant high-tech company. And our job is to translate and communicate between these areas and help them understand how they can protect themselves. We are not magicians. We're not going to be the ones who come in and step in and fix their problems with some miracle solution, but we can help them understand their situation in a way that they haven't been naturally able to see themselves. Mm. Okay, that's really interesting. And from a government point of view, what advice do you have to, you know, government information workers around what they need to know to be sort of cyber aware and then what can they actually do to make sure that they're not contributing to what is obviously a very large and growing problem? Mm. So for, for government workers particularly, there's a few things. Firstly, talk to each other. Um, there are dozens of government departments in every country, and every country has a, a particularly the ones who have a slightly British heritage somewhere along the way. We all have this slightly siloed mentality um, where we'll have multiple departments doing similar things, but we don't cross-pollinate as often as we should. 
So getting out there and sharing approaches and sharing challenges is a really important thing that we need to do way, way more of. The loudest voices in the room shouldn't always be paid security professionals like me. They should be the people who are in the trenches trying to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, furthermore, at least um, in this part of the world, there are quite heavy compliance frameworks around government agencies. You know, we, we have rules to follow, we have reports to file, all of those kind of things. And it's very tempting to feel like that routine, that kind of audit cycle we go through every year is enough to save us. So, you know, the auditor will find it and then we'll do our fixes and then next year we'll be fine. But we need to get out of that audit will save us kind of mentality and start getting a little bit more hands on. And not waiting for a control scheme to tell us what we should do, but really examining our own environments. And for each of the government departments out there, you each have a different set of data, which is interesting and valuable in different ways. And as we move to more open data and to more sharing at the the kind of data sharing and technology level, then that's going to become crucial that we really understand the value that's specific to us, not just what the framework is valuing. Mm. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because that sort of mirrors a lot of, you know, the emerging business processes and business practice that it has, you really do have to adopt uh, this agile mindset at a time of digital transformation because it's not just in cyber, but I know, you know, in, in the focus that we have around, you know, the creation and curation and distribution of, of information, um, you have to, again, adopt that same uh, mentality, which is to basically run multiple experiments around what it is that you think that is going to work for you, then measure the impact and then adjust and adapt as, as, as a result of that. So really it's, it goes to this wider change, doesn't it, that we really have to think about the way we do our work differently because we now live in a different world. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, there's a really interesting bit of psychology that plays into all of this that we all need to be mindful of. So at SafeStep, we try to cross-pollinate between um, business psychology and understanding bias and technology. We're a really hybrid mess of a group. Um, But one of the things that we find really interesting is there's a, a rule in psychology that says the more something challenges your identity, the more it threatens what you're used to being measured as successful in, the more we will avoid doing it. So if you find out, find that, you know, that thing that you've had, you know, success in for 10 years, you've always done security this way and yeah. everyone has always given you a good performance review. If you find that's being challenged, you might, as an individual, very naturally try and defend it. Um, but not in a way that's driven by any evidence, but just because it, it threatens the identity you have and we all need to be able to if we're going to defend ourselves and each other we have to be able to step back from that personal feeling and go okay let me see can I justify it does it work and and if we find that there is a gap be open and brave enough to say well actually maybe we can do better and try something new Um, there's a real risk if we kind of let our own personal feelings and vulnerability get in the way we'll never change the way we do things Mm. it's a massive change though isn't it big that's a as you say if that's an underlying principle of most people and the way they manage their identity uh and their self-worth and their value that's going to be it's going to be a big challenge isn't it it's huge and it's something we have to try and do together we're not gonna this isn't gonna be an overnight we all read a self-help book and have a hug (laughs) and we feel fine um but I think the more that security becomes a message that's crossed 
uh, not just technology, but also talks about us as people and why we're vulnerable and why this matters, the more people will be engaged with looking at themselves a little bit as part of that. But it takes voices in all the right places to do that. So we need to make sure as an industry that we're open and we're sharing Fantastic. Well, listen, Laura, thank you so much for uh, for giving up some of your time today to to speak to me and to the audience about this very relevant uh, and important and critically important, really, uh, role that people people play. Because uh, I think that's what I take from it is that really this is a people job, as you know, more so than anything else. And it's really you know those changing of mindsets that is is going to really get us down the path to. Um, you know, playing that role that we need to play to keep information safe, particularly those working in the in the public sector who own very, very valuable information and data sets around uh, citizens. And so obviously that's information that needs to be held um, very securely or as securely as possible. Absolutely. So thank you. Thanks for joining us. And uh, thank you to the audience for, for uh, coming back once again this week. Fascinating conversation there with Laura Bell, who is the CEO at SafeStack in New Zealand. And some wonderful, simple, clear, uh, articulate, authentic advice and things that we can employ uh, we can employ in our day-to-day practice to ensure that we are doing the right thing. So thank you very much for coming back once again and I will be back at the same time again next week but for the moment it's bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.